You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow host Jonathan, and this episode will cover parts 1 and 2 of Red Rising, which is the first book in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. If you're watching live, join us in the chat, or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please note that the views expressed in this show are those of the host as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And don't forget that we now have a Patreon with 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month. It offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. You can check it out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. There's nothing like diving into a new series, and with Red Rising, we're hell-diving in with Darrow as he rides a claw drill deep below the surface of Mars, mining the helium-3 that is used to terraform Mars. Darrow is a red, one of the many colors in this far-future society, described by the Sovereign as brave pioneers, strongest of the human breed, who sacrificed to pave the way for other colors by toiling to make Mars ready for them. As the hell diver of Lycos, Darrow is a cocksure teen bent on winning the laurel for his clan, the Lambdas. The Gammas always win the laurel, the prize that is supposedly based on mining the most helium-3, and which gets them extra food, medicine, and other treats. All thing that Darrow wants for his wife, Eo, who is clearly the light of his life. So Darrow kind of stupidly believes that taking a huge risk during his mining shift and making a huge helium-3 pull will finally allow Lambda to win the laurel although the older, wiser man on his crew and even his young wife all know better. The Laurel once again goes to Gamma, and as a consolation prize, Eo takes Darrow to visit a secret garden used by the Greys who guard the mining colony. While they have a wonderful night together, making love under the stars, it turns out to be their last night. Greys catch them exiting the garden, and both Darrow and Eo are subjected to a lashing. Only Eo interrupts hers by singing a forbidden song, which turns her already terrible punishment into a death sentence. Forced to watch his wife hang, Darrow decides he wants to follow her to the grave. The law says that criminals can't be buried. Their bodies hang as a warning to the township until the flesh has rotted away, and then their bones are removed and ground to dust. But Darrow cuts Eo's body down and buries her in the garden, and is then subjected to his own hanging. Now, luckily for Darrow, his uncle, Neryl, gave him a special drink prior to the hanging to slow his heartbeat. Faked pulling his feet, which is necessary to relieve suffering in Mars's low gravity, and then was able to turn off the security cameras to drag Darrow down and bury him. So while Darrow wakes up in a grave, he does in fact wake up and is immediately picked up by a red woman named Harmony and brought to Dancer, who is also a red and clearly high up in the Sons of Ares chain of command. Who are the Sons of Ares, you ask? Why, they're the so-called terrorist group that has been blamed for bombings, but who also hacked the HC, which is essentially the society's version of Fox News, to broadcast EO's martyrdom. And now they want to recruit Darrow. 
He's more than a little hesitant at first, but then Dancer takes Darrow on a long elevator ride and into a penthouse with a view of the city. Because it turns out that Mars has been habitable for hundreds of years. And, you know, why would anyone tell the Reds who slave away mining the helium-3 that the society needs for fuel that they've been lied to all this time? Anyway. Seeing the final product of his people's labors leads to Darrow agreeing to help the Sons of Ares, and his help comes in the form of giving up his entire self, physically at least, because Dancer hires a violet named Mickey to make Darrow a gold. This process is called carving, and Darrow pretty much only survives it because a pit viper bite made his heart stronger than most, as carving involves rebuilding his entire body, again, even down to his bone density. He's also fed hundreds of years of history, literature, science, and more while he sleeps, and eventually a pink named Mateo is brought in to train him in dance, etiquette, and speech. Finally, Darrow is as ready as he'll ever be to take the admittance test for the Gold Institute on Mars. He does so well that the Board of Quality Control pays him a visit, but he fools them as well, and so his real mission finally begins. On his way to the Institute, he shares a shuttle with a rude little gold named Severo and Julian, who happens to be the brother of a young man named Cassius that Darrow had a meet-cute with on testing day. They're the sons of an Imperator, a.k.a. a really important dude. As it turns out, once at the Institute, the students are sorted into houses, and Darrow ends up in House Mars along with Severo, Julian, and Cassius, among others. A welcome feast is held, and everyone goes to sleep well-fed and presumably excited for the future, until they're all dragged out of their beds, stripped naked, beaten, and then tossed into and then tossed two to a room and told only one of them can come out alive. Unfortunately for Julian, he's paired with Darrow, and while Darrow hates what he has to do, he also understands that he has no choice. He kills the other boy, crying as he does so, and is left cradling the body of this kind person and finally beginning to understand what the Institute really is. A culling ground. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) Okay, so, part one of... Red Rising is titled Slave. And I just want to start the discussion out with a quote, and I have several passages that I'm probably going to, if not read outright, then actually, you know, definitely reference throughout our discussion. But the quote I'm going to start with is EO says the laurel is the carrot the society dangles, always just far enough beyond our grasp, just enough so we know how short we really are and how little we can do about it. We're supposed to be pioneers. EO calls us slaves. I just think we never try hard enough, never take the big risks because of the old men. So there's several things that we can unpack from this passage. And one of them is just to start, he makes the comment how short we really are. And I think that's like, uh, not the best segue, but an okay segue into the heights of the society, because as we mentioned several times in the summary, there are colors that make up everything. And at the very bottom are the reds, or in this case, very specifically, I think we can refer to them as low reds, because there are also higher up reds that actually know that the terraforming is complete and work as sort of servants and whatnot. But at the top is the golds, obviously. And the height difference between them, if you look it up, it's hard to describe, but the golds are described as like, I can't remember if it's seven, I think it's seven feet tall or something like that. Yeah. Most of the men seem to be 
around six ten to seven two. Yeah. And, and the women are even like six six, usually. There are exceptions that we'll talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> and the height difference is just absolutely it, to be honest, it's kind of over the top. And it's one of those things where as much as they talk about making this into some sort of series, I feel like if fans are going to want to see that height difference, they're probably going to have to do it as an animated show because there are also obsidians, which we meet only briefly in the first part of this book when they are actually there with the arch governor of Mars, Nira Al Augustus. He has obsidian guards with him and obsidians are even bigger than golds usually but there's plenty of colors and we only met a few of them officially at least by name as of this point so there's reds at the bottom just above them are browns browns are basically servants there's obsidians and pinks obsidians are kind of warmongering. They can be guards, but they're usually used as soldiers. And then there's pinks who are essentially sex slaves. The grays Uh, uh, are basic guards, right? Violets are creators. And all we've met as of right now are reds, obviously. Darrow is a red. We get brief mentions of the obsidians. We meet Mateo, who is a pink. Mickey, who does the carving and is a violet. We meet a few greys by name because they are guards in Darrow's colony, but we don't really get many details about them beyond that. And then we meet a whole bunch of golds in part two of the book. So I just wanted to touch on the fact that there are these huge height differences in the society, and there's also these very specific casts where if you are this, you are assigned these handful of things. You don't necessarily just have to be a miner if you're a red. I mean, the women in Darrow's colony essentially farm silk, right? They're basically picking cotton, the way it's kind of described. And um, there are, like I said, some high reds that live on the surface. So they're, they can have more than one job, but they're all kind of relegated to a specific set of tasks. So Darrow also says in that passage that I just think we never try hard enough. We never take big risks because of the old men. And that's a huge part of the first couple chapters of the book. So I just wanted to talk about at the very beginning when Darrow is in his claw drill and there's a gas pocket and all the old dudes are like, no, don't do it, Darrow. And Darrow's like, fuck them, I'm doing it anyway. And he thinks that they've, they're going to win the Laurel because of how much helium three he pulls, but all the old guys are grumbling and like, no, it's absolutely not happening. I guess it's pretty obvious that it's got to be age and experience that have made them understand that no matter what they do, they are not going to win. This is interesting. Yes, I do think it's age and experience, but I also find it weird. I mean, I, I found this part of the society weird in that you have these groups of low reds who are miners who live in the mines and never actually leave the mines or essentially mines. And yet they're kept on almost starvation rations, which I I understand they're trying to claim that there's shortages and that sort of thing. But on the other hand, I don't think that's, since they need helium three and it's important, it doesn't seem like it's the most efficient way to get the helium three to keep your, I mean, you you don't want to get, you know, make them fat, dumb and happy so they don't do any work. 
But I think it seemed to me that in this case, the society was not investing in their labor force quite as much as they should. There's a fine line there, I understand, between an author thing that you just wanted to make it so bad and so horrible. But I I tried to put it from the perspective of the people running the place. It just doesn't seem like an efficient way to run a mine. (laughs) I mean, I don't disagree, but I I think the obvious explanation is it's basically slavery. It's basically slavery as it was, particularly in the Caribbean and the Americas in the 1700s, 1800s, because the field workers were absolutely kept beaten down and and not given hard. They were given like what the basics that they needed to live, and that was it. And I agree, it's not a smart way to run things. But also, you could even compare it to today's society, in which, I mean, don't get me wrong, many of us have recognized for a long time that there's huge sections of workers that are underpaid. Those mainly being like restaurant workers, food service workers, people who work at, you know, grocery stores, the people who are necessary, right, to keep things running more so than so many of us are. And, you know, of course, there's been this whole nobody wants to work anymore thing for the past couple of years since COVID, really, because they're right. People don't want to work these shitty jobs for little to no pay and they're clapping back. So I do think there is a comparison to be made there as well. Um, The difference is we are at a point in our world and society where these people have, it's been recognized that they are essential and they realize they're essential and that they can ask for more money. They might not get it, as we're seeing now in our current state of affairs, but they've realized that they can ask for it. So I think that there's a couple different comparisons you can make. And I don't disagree that it seems kind of silly for these super important workers to be underfed, but also the Laurel thing. And yeah, that that's the part I don't understand. I, I don't understand why that would be rigged for the same group every time. I, I, I can understand somewhat keeping them hungry by ha- offering the laurel. But if I were the imperator who is in charge of the mine, you'd want it to be passed around, ideally to get everyone to work harder. Because as, as Darrow then realized after the fact, when he didn't win the laurel and the old men were right, why take risks? Why, why go the extra mile to get more stuff if we're not going to be benefit from it? So, but if the laurel is changing hands rapidly, or at least occasionally, I think it is better for the efficiency of the whole operation. So I I think the author was trying to make a point about how miserable it is. Some of it is also, and actually this is another passage that I had highlighted, kind of explains some of that. As the laurel wreath boxes come down to gamma, I think about how clever it really is. They won't let us the lambdas win the laurel. They don't care that the math doesn't work. They don't care that the young scream and protest and the old moan their same tired wisdoms. This is just a demonstration of their power. It is their power. They decide the winner, a game of merit won by birth. It keeps the hierarchy in place. It keeps us striving, but never conspiring. Yet despite the disappointment, some part of us doesn't blame the society. We blame Gamma, who receives the gifts. A man's only got so much hate, I suppose. And when he sees his children's ribs through their shirts, while his neighbors line their bellies with meat stews and sugared tarts, it's hard for him to hate anyone but them. You think they'd share. They don't. So 
I think that this is obviously a different world, a very different world than what we're living in now. But I do think that it's important to note the fact that by giving it to Gamma every time, they're creating a rivalry between these two clans so that they keep fighting because there's always going to be young ones like Darrow who hope that next time they'll be the ones that win the laurel. The old ones have given up, right? But they are too afraid of the consequences of fighting against it to do anything other than moan and groan. So the fact that the hierarchy is kept in place because there's always going to be young ones who think they can win it for the first time, right? But they hate the gammas so much that they're never going to work with them to change things. I mean, that's what's, I think, the most important point from this part of the book is the rivalry that is built between the clans, keeping them from doing anything different, basically. Because the Gammas aren't helping the Lambdas, and the Lambdas just keep trying. And in the Laurel Passage, there are, I think it's Mu and Chi, maybe? There's two other clans that didn't meet their quotas. And Darrow makes a point of saying it's because um, they hit a gas pocket and like lost a whole bunch of their drillers or whatever. And they get their rations cut. So yeah. like they're even worse off. It's a very, it's not a one-to-one comparison with how <clears throat> capitalism <clears throat> doesn't work in the United States. But Pierce Brown is definitely trying to make a point here about how keeping the low low keeps the middle class middle class and keeps the rich super fucking rich. But onto the important stuff, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, is this less important or more important? Because the building blocks of this society, the world building, there's a lot of it in the first two parts of this book, but there's also a whole bunch of story because we meet and are meant to fall in love with Eo, seeing her through Darrow's eyes, even though personally she drives me a little bit crazy. <laughs> and then we lose her, right? Like so quickly. But she's imperative to the story. She's imperative to his story. And a lot of people really love EO. A lot of people are frustrated by her. I'm on the frustrated by her end because, like, I understand what she's saying, where she's coming from. She has really good points. But also, man, girl, you, you just did not handle any of this well. Well, I mean, speculating on what we do and don't know. I mean, she sang this song knowing it was a death sentence. The mm. question is, why? Is she just a stubborn, hothead um, rebel? Or, and this is what I don't, still have never figured out, did she know that Neral was with the, the Sons of Ares and that this would get out? And therefore it was a sacrifice to be the martyr. And that she knew she was going to be a martyr as opposed to just becoming a martyr afterwards. I think that she knew she was going to be a martyr either way, right? I think she knew some things. I mean, she knew that the garden existed, right? right? That there was a place with dirt and grass and animals and trees and a night sky and they could see the sunrise. So she knows that they have the ability to terraform. And it doesn't sound like it's a small place either. She knows the, that they have the ability to terraform portions of the land so the garden she may or may not know what they can do or not they basically terraformed a small cave yes 
and they already have atmosphere in said cave. Otherwise, the miners couldn't exist. So I wouldn't say it's that's like terraforming. It's you had a cave, you pumped oxygen into it. Because you could pump oxygen into it and you have power, you can make light and therefore you can grow things. I, I don't necessarily think that's terraforming per se, but. I mean, it is because nothing ever should have been able to grow in the yeah, well, period. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm just saying, I don't think of it as knowing that the big terraforming success. I mean, they know they know how to terraform, otherwise, they wouldn't be on Mars in the first place. Right. It, well, and I think the point that EO is making is when she brings Darrow there, is they can do this. They have done it. It's to a small area, right? But she understands that the Reds are the ones who made this happen. The Greys didn't do this, but they're the only ones who get to use it. That's not fair. I'm totally 100% behind that. I don't know that she knows about Uncle Narrow. I, I really don't think she does. I, I think that she is a hot-headed young person who loves her husband, but hates everything else about their lives because she is so stalwart in her belief that they are slaves. Darrow fights against it. He says, you know, we're safer being on our knees. It's better that we're on our knees and we have food in our bellies, even if it's not the good food, I guess. But what she says to him when they're in the garden, death isn't empty like you say it is. Emptiness is life without freedom, Darrow. Emptiness is living chained by fear, fear of loss, of death. I say we break those chains. Break the chains of fear, and you break the chains that bind us to the golds, to the society. Could you imagine it? Mars could be ours. It could belong to the colonists who slaved here, died here, if you led the others to freedom. The things you could do, Darrow, the things you could make happen. I live for the dream that my children will be born free, that they will be what they like, that they will own the land their father gave them. I live for you, Darrow says sadly. And then she kisses his cheek and says, then you must live for more. And I think that that passage just completely describes who she is. She has so much faith in and love for Darrow, but her love for him does not overcome her hatred for the society. The seeds of it were always there, right? We read in part two that Uncle Narrow, his daughter... I think like has an affair with a gamma to get meds that her husband needs. And then her husband finds out and kills the gamma and like they all die or something. But I think it's like all these little bits and pieces that Darrow is ignoring because he is so blindly obsessed with EO and she's, she chose him, but I honestly, I think she loves him, loved him, but I think EO chose Darrow because of this because of the things she's saying because she knows that he has it in him to be something greater she loves him but i'm not sure it's it's in the right way or for the right reasons it's how i've always felt about her and i don't know what's more maddening the idea that she sacrificed herself in the hopes that it would lead to him doing something more or the fact that she might have known about it all and just gone as a willing lamb to the slaughter. And I really, I really think it's the former, not the latter. But unless Pierce at some well, point ever reveals the answer, which I honestly don't think he will, because I wouldn't if I was the author, we'll never know. And it will always be a point of contention. Well, if it was the latter, I don't consider it the let going like a lamb to the slaughter, because it's more the wolf staring down the bear knowing it can't win than the lamb going to the slaughter. I don't know the answer either. I've always 
the plan, if it was the first one, then the hope that he would do something more. I mean, I don't know why you would think your death would cause him to do something more. There was nothing in evidence at that point in the story to indicate that there was more there. Yeah, he was a hothead. So it was far more likely he was going to get himself killed than doing anything successful. And she knew he was a hothead. So hence why I wondered if she knew the plan all along. And that was the plan with Neryl and her and who knows if she knew Dancer or not. I've thought about that for a while of whether she was in on it from the get-go and just decided to be the sacrificial lamb, but I wouldn't describe her as a sacrificial lamb. It's a lot of rereads and how... Her and Dara are both hot-headed, right? And that's why I, I've always kind of leaned toward that she was just trying to make a point with her death. Going into part two, where Eo has died, they received their lashings because they were caught coming out of the garden by the greys. And, or well, Daryl received his lashing, Eo received some of hers, and he was worried she was going to die. And he was begging them to, to let him take her lashes after a certain point and they put a stone in his mouth and gagged him right you couldn't just gag him with a cloth or something jesus but no not of course not not in this society so he watches her sing this song and then she immediately gets hanged and of course the arch governor is here for this whole thing they're trying to make an example out of darrow because he's a hell diver and you know even even the most important among you aren't exempt from punishment when they do wrong but they never say what they did wrong and they also say and the most beautiful eo who is very beautiful aren't exempt from punishment but darrow knowing that it's his own death sentence sneaks out of his house and goes to pull eo down and bury her against you know all the rules whatever and it's a very quick thing right he pulls down her body he brings her up to the garden buries her in the garden comes back down the next thing we know he's gonna be hanged and when he was pulling eo's body down his uncle gave him a drink from a flask right and when i first read this book i read it so quickly that i didn't recognize that after he drank from his uncle's flask, it was like a progression of very brief mentions, but very clearly mentioned quite a few times, you know, that I feel like I feel drunk, I feel slow, everything feels heavy. I, I'm, And then at the end, before he even gets hanged, he's having trouble breathing. So on reread, it was like, oh God, of course, Nero gave him something. But the first time I read it, I was reading so fast, I glossed over all of that. Nero knew Darrow was going to do what he did, but he knew how to turn those cameras off, but he didn't do it on purpose, right? He could have. He knew Darrow was going to do this. He straight up said he knew Darrow was going to do this, but he didn't turn those cameras off because he needed Darrow to be hanged. He needed that to happen in order to deliver him to the Sons of Ares. Now, what is more interesting, I think, is that while Darrow is pulling Eo down and everything, is the HC is quote-unquote malfunctioning for the first time ever in its history. And it's obviously hackers, right? I, I think anybody reading it would recognize that somebody's messing with stuff in the background. We find out later for sure that that's what it was, but the way that it just keeps replaying Eo's death, it's the song, and then it's her shouting, break the chains. You know, they don't show the little bits and pieces. They show the parts that 
are going to make her the martyr that they need her to be, the Persephone that they need her to be. So Dara gets hanged and wakes up in a grave. That part I thought was weird. Did Nero really need to bury him? I feel like he hid him in an old tunnel that nobody uses anymore. What was the necessity of actually putting him in the ground other than some sort of Christ thing that we're trying to do here? He wouldn't have been found there. Not before he woke up and Harmony literally was immediately there for him. They knew the timing. So he wakes up, kind of digs himself out of his little shallow grave, and Harmony is immediately there to truck him off, literally, and bring him to Dancer. And Darrow knows who they are immediately. He knows who they are. But like I said in the summary, the HC is like the Fox News of the society, right? Yeah. So they've always heard the Sons of Aries are just like militant, like terrorist bombers who are murdering mining colonies and stuff for no reason. So it's interesting that he immediately knows who's doing this and he's not with them, but he's also not necessarily against them right away. He's just kind of like, what are you going to do for me? (laughs) So what were your thoughts on Darrow's first meeting with Harmony and Dancer? To me, it was just the next stage in the plot. And I, that part of it, I never really did a lot of thought about about what Darrow's feelings were at the time. First, it was confusion, then anger when he found out that there was a real whole world out there that he had been denied. Well, so early on in Darrow's conversation with Dancer, Dancer tells him about how Uncle Narrow works for them, essentially. But the way Dancer is talking about Narrow, Darrow says, you act like my uncle bloody damn owed you. Dancer says he owes his people. People. And Darrow laughs at this. There's family. There's clan. There may even be township and mine, but people? People? And you act as though you're my representative, as though you have a right to my life. But you are just a fool. All you sons of Aries. My voice is withering in its condescension. Fools who can do nothing but blow things up, like children kicking pit viper nests in rage. And he has a point, because that's all he knows, right? Honestly... (laughs) I know Nick isn't here tonight, but one of the things Nick said when he first started reading this book was, I didn't know I was going to be reading about real life things that are happening. And the funny thing is, Red Rising was published in 2014. And not to say that Pierce absolutely didn't take his cues and a lot of what he wrote from history, but it's been really weird actually to start rereading this now after everything that has happened in the past couple of years. And I'm brought back to the protests that were happening in 2020, the Black Lives Matter protests. And of course, from my point of view, I'm not really seeing people do anything wrong. They're protesting rightfully, right? But it's being described on a lot of news channels, including, you know, Fox News, aka <laughs> the same thing as the society's HC, that they're violent protesters and it's they're causing all these problems, they're looting, et cetera. And then you find out later that it's actually not them that is doing any of that at all, that some of it was fake, entirely fake, and some of it was actually super right-wing people who were instigating things. But it's been really weird rereading this and realizing the actual current time comparisons 
And, you know, I agree with Darrow, right? If you're only seeing one version of things, in this case, the Sons of Aries are just a bunch of assholes bombing innocent minors, then of course you're going to think that they're a bunch of fools that just blow things up. But then Dancer takes him to the surface or really way above the surface and shows him how things really are. Darrow immediately is like, oh, fuck this. Yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Because he realizes that not just that they've been lied to, but also how much EO was right. So it's a really quick but well-written turning point, in my opinion. This could have been done in so many different ways, I suppose, but Pierce Brown does not take time. We see Darrow seeing how it is, and he's like, nope, done. I'm with you. I'm with you. Forget everything I said about you guys just being bombers blowing things up. It was a really well done, you know, quickly without dragging things out, I guess. Fair enough. Another passage is it's kind of a bit of a rehash of some things Darrow has said before or thought before. How clever of them. How much hate they create between people who should be kin. But if the clans knew what luxury exists on the surface, if they knew how much had been stolen from them, they would feel the hatred I feel. They would unite. And he knows that if it was just Reds uniting and rising up, that it would be a hot-blooded, quick thing that was immediately put down. So he agrees to what they're doing, which the carving is something that I have learned over my years of, I kind of lurk on the Red Rising subreddit. I've listened to a couple of podcasts, Howler Pod and Hail Reaper are the only two podcasts that are totally Red Rising as far as I have found. Having read a bunch of stuff on, on Reddit and having listened to those two podcasts, it's very interesting to me that there's a lot of mixed opinions about the carving chapters, which is a big part of part two of this book. I personally feel like it was necessary, but I think, I guess a lot of people think it's slow. I think that Pierce Brown does a lot of scientific stuff really well in these books or technological stuff really well in these books, but the carving was one of the things where how the heck is somebody ever going to survive this? How the heck did you make somebody's bones denser? I do feel like there's a lot of questionable. I mean, I look as someone who's a Marvel superhero fan, essentially the carving was Steve Rogers, Captain America and the super soldier serum. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. Uh, That's how I viewed it. I mean, it's a bunch of steroids they loaded in with and then a, combination of if you make these bones denser they took wolverine and they gave him an adamantium skeleton you just go with the flow you assume they have the technology and they said that this was really experimental and a bunch of people died because of it the same is true with the super soldier serum it's just something (laughs) it's a convenient plot device that it doesn't matter there are things that when i just think they're so preposterous as it will never happen i get upset but in this you just They've already talked about carving in other things and making genetically engineered creatures mm. and and creating these different mythological creatures. They mentioned earlier that there's carving and that they make these animals. So it's consistent with the universe and it was fine. <laughs> oh, I mean, I was never thinking like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. No, I don't want it. Let me be very clear. It just, in terms of how Pierce Brown describes a lot of the science and technology, I felt like this was one of the weaker things. 
That said, though, this is also the first book. So that could also just be a writer growing and learning, et cetera. But the other thing is, I really want whatever Darrow was, whatever he had that helped him just learn like thousands of years, because he was a completely uneducated person. He didn't even know how to read. And he learned thousands of years of history and math and uh, science and literature in a couple months. Like, that's what I want. That wasn't genetic engineering, but that was basically, they gave him an implant of some kind so that he could take in this information into his brain. I mean, again, I, I must admit, I want that chip in real life. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to have it. I think I'm going to be, unfortunately, at least one generation too late. Yeah, no, same, probably. <laughs> My daughter's children, maybe, will get the chip. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, not arguing at all with the technology of that existing or whatever. I just want it. That's all. <laughs> and I want to be able to retain that knowledge because that's the other thing. Like I can, I, I can read a book and two years later, I remember at best the basic plot points and maybe some character names if I'm lucky, if I've only read it once, right? So lucky you, Darrow. Minus all the pain and, and heartache and everything that you're going through. Lucky you. <laughs> But then he also gets trained in etiquette and speech and dance by Mateo, a pink. And at some point, he's dancing so well that Mateo questions him because he learned how to dance from his uncle Nerol. Or, well, he, he might have learned some things from his father prior to the forbidden dance that uncle Nerol taught him. But there are dances that Mateo is teaching him that are at least reminiscent of the ones that he learned in the mines, which is very interesting to me because that means that most likely the golds have taken their dancing cues from the reds, which is a little bit cultural appropriation, probably. I thought of that totally differently. I just assumed it was before the colors. I just think it's how the dancing has evolved from reds versus golds from before that there were colors and they're related, but they're different. That's how I saw it. But perhaps, perhaps I think the thing that got me was that Mateo freaks out and is like, who are you actually? And the important part really from that section is that Darrow says, this is who I am. I do not lie to low colors. But it was important that he was so good at the dancing, he didn't even really need to be taught. And that is what made Mateo question whether or not he was a red who had been carved into a gold. Yeah. Another thing that after he has gone through the carving, after he has been learning all these things, Dancer explains to Darrow how dangerous it is. I mean, he knew it was dangerous from the beginning, but Darrow is taking things kind of lightly and Dancer's like, dude, they will torture the fuck out of you. They will pull you apart piece by piece if they figure out that you're not actually a gold somehow. And Darrow says, it doesn't matter if they find me out. They've taken what they can from me already. That is why I'm a weapon you can use because he's thinking of EO, right? He's thinking of, it might've been a lie, the life that he lived in the mines, but he is still so attached to that lie and that life and that wife. Uh But this is a quote that is oft quoted from Dancer. He says, wrong. You're of use because you're more than a weapon. 
when your wife died, she didn't just give you a vendetta. She gave you her dream. You're its keeper, its maker. So don't be spitting anger and hate. You're not fighting against them no matter what Harmony says. You're fighting for EO's dream, for your family that is still alive, your people. I think that's a really important moment in Darrow's character growth because one of the things I made sure to kind of just slightly insert in the summary is that he is a cocksure little asshole as a hell diver. And then he learns that his whole life is a lie, but he's still really just super sure of himself. And I think it's important that he understand the gravity of the whole situation. And I think that it's Dancer telling him this that allows him to understand that, or at least partially allows him to understand that. I was going to say, I'm not sure he actually has grown out of it yet, but. Oh no, he hasn't grown out of it. No, 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 no. I'm just saying this is part of what leads Darrow to understand that he needs to be more than just an angry revenge seeking, vengeance seeking machine, basically. So then Darrow takes the test, right? He takes the test to go into the Institute. It's kind of funny because there's a girl that's sitting next to him that's like tapping a stylus and annoying the shit out of him. So he steals her stylus. Several people see him do it, including the proctor, the person who's administering the test. And the proctor is like kind of, you know, knowingly, oh, yeah, 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 I thought she did. Good job. He doesn't say that, but that's the whole <laughs> thing. And one of the other students or prospective students calls him a uh, cutter or something like that, you know, basically saying you're overstepping your bounds or whatever. But then Cassius comes in and they have their little meat cute, <laughs> which is mostly just Cassius being like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're clearly a smart dude. Saw what you did there. And Darrow is just like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Like, he's like, he's nice enough, I guess, but he's a gold. And it's a very, it's a very interesting exchange between the two of them first exchange because to be honest i i'd kind of forgotten that that happened and i thought that they didn't meet until after darrow meets julian who's cassius's brother but no they meet at the testing center and cassius is like oh come party with me and darrow's like nah i got shit to do (laughs) right and cassius is like oh right 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 because he's you know he's not an important gold whatever he doesn't have money but but darrow does so well on the test that they call the board of quality control on him. To see if he cheated. Yeah. Right. Right. He was too good. Didn't they say he like didn't miss a question or he missed one question or something? I think he missed one. Yeah. I think he missed one out of hundreds. And the thing is the education that he received, if that exists, do not, they all go through that. Maybe it's considered improper. Right. I mean, that would be cheating. I, you know, and there are enough people who cheat as it is in this world. But, um, or again, it may be so dangerous to do it. The carving, the physical carving, yes, but the well, but we don't know. I mean, knowledge. It, well, it could be. I mean, who knows? It could fry the brain on twenty percent of the people or something. It, you don't. We don't know. It again. You just sort of go with it. Yes, they had this chip. Yes, it helped push him up. Or maybe everyone does do it because of the way their bodies work. Not everyone retains it as perfectly as he happened to. They all have the same 
chip and they go through the same learning, but like I can go through the same class you do and read the same books you do, but you you may retain it better than I do. Well, and it's also not just basic knowledge retention, right? One of the things that is mentioned quite a few times is his ability to extrapolate. Right. Strategy. So problem solving. Not, yes. So not everybody has that. A big part of that is that's how Daryl's brain works. And that's clearly not how everybody's brain works, including Julian, because while we don't know this right away, we do find out later that he struggled to get into the Institute. The Institute takes the best and worst students, and that's how they call the absolute worst from goals. So so like the average people are the bronzies who we talk about later, the golds who don't go to the Institute. And the Institute basically takes the best and the dregs. That was my interpretation of what was happening. I think that it's, they take the best, but then they also take people like Julian. It, it comes up later for sure. But what they do do is when they go through the passage is they pair somebody who they think needs to be called, in this case, Julian, with somebody who will absolutely be able to kill them, in this case, Darrow. So Darrow goes through the test. He passes it with flying colors. He gets questioned by the board because he passed it with like two flying colors. He gets to the Institute and he has to sit there and listen to Nero, the arch governor, who was there when his wife died. And he blames Eo's death on Nero, which, you know, to be honest, listen, it is not Nero's singular fault, right? It's the entire society. It's the society as a whole. All of it's bad. <laughs> but Darrow has a specific obsession with Nero because he was there at the time. But Nero says, society has three stages, savagery, ascendance, decadence. The great rise because of savagery. They rule in ascendance. They fall because of their own decadence. And he's, in this particular passage, he's talking about the savagery that the people who settled Luna, who settled the moon, had to exert on Earth because Earth was taxing the shit out of them. And they were like, ha ha ha, fuck you. We're just going to kill you all. And then they rule in ascendance and they fall because of their own decadence. And in the decadence thing, he's talking about the pixies, which when Darrow first sees the city, he sees a pixie. The first gold he sees in the city is a dude flying around on grab boots or something. And he's got bottles of wine in his hand. And he's laughing and drinking and he's meeting up with all these girls. And these are, these are a bunch of pixies. We don't know that at the time, but now we know that. Then Darrow says um, that Nero tells them how the Persians were felled, how the Romans collapsed because their rulers forgot how their parents gained them an empire. He prattles about Muslim dynasties and European effeminacy and Chinese regionalism and American self-loathing and self nudity all the ancient names. So he's bringing up all these societies who either have already fallen or in this far future society will eventually. And it's very interesting that they have specific examples in their current society of the savagery ascendance decadence, but he's telling them about the history of it because he wants to drive home the point that our society could die at any time if it falls into any one of these pits, right? Right. So that's why the Institute exists, is to keep the uh, iron golds on top. But then 
And this is where I, what I mentioned earlier, they have to go through an additional test after they've already been accepted to the Institute. They still have another test to go through. And I just want to read this passage because I was laughing about it and I read it to Dean and we were talking about how it's very similar to some tests or a test in Ender's Game. Darrow says, the test is quick and it is in the form of an immersion game. There's a goblet on a hill that I need to acquire. Many obstacles stand in my way. I pass them as rationally as possible, trying to hide my anger when a little elf steals a key I acquire. But every step of the way, there's some setback, some inconvenience, and it is always unforeseen. It is always something beyond the bounds of extrapolation. In the end, I reach the goblet, but only after killing an annoying wizard and cruelly enslaving the race of elves by means of said wizard's magic wand. I could have left the elves be, but they annoyed me. <laughs> and honestly, I just, I read that. <laughs> the whole thing at the end, I could have left the elves be, but they annoyed me, was very much like, oh God, Darrow, I feel you. I think that test is part of how he ends up in House Mars, because they see that he has this sort of almost vicious streak in him. He didn't have to win. At this game, the Proctor of House Mercury, the little kind of flighty one who wanted Darrow and the Praetors okay. passed him over. Okay. Darrow, he, he could have done this test differently because to be honest, I'm thinking like having just reread these parts of the book. So how did others take this test and how did that affect where they were placed? Like, well, I guess we didn't talk about the passage at all, but to me, it's very self-explanatory. He's thinking, oh God, these like lazy ass golds, like we're just going to college, basically. We're going to party like frat boys. And then he gets pulled from his bed and beaten and shoved in a room with one other person. And they're told only one of us com can come out alive. And poor Julian is just like, I need this, dude. I need this. I can't not be in the Institute. And Darrow is like, nah, man, you don't understand. I can't just walk away from this. You have to kill me, and I'm not going to let you kill me. And everything could be different, would be different if Darrow hadn't been paired with Julian. But because he was, it was super sad because when he met Julian, it was this recognition that there are golds out there who are good, who are kind and he immediately had to murder this kid yeah and it was interesting that it, he figured it out much quicker because he was quite mm -hmm. honestly not good because <laughs> well, julian didn't have that streak in him right, right. well that's what i said Darrow is not pure no, as driven snow <laughs> no no he's not I mean, rightfully so, but no, he's not. And we're just kind of left at the end of part two where he hates that he had to do this, right? He hates it, but he still murdered this kid. Right. And that is where we're left. All right. Well, I usually close out with a quote, but I've read so many of them. I think what I want to read is this sounds like a Passover quote, but I think it is very important and I want to remember it for future episodes. Mateo shines my shoes in my room. Of course, there are machines for doing these things, but an aureate would never use a machine for something a person could do. There is no power in that. And as we close out this episode, I just want to give a shout out to our Heroes Tier patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. 
Once again, I'm Tara along with fellow host Jonathan. Don't forget, you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for Sagas and Sass. We'll be back on Wednesday, October 5th to cover part three of Red Rising, which is just called Gold. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.